Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where someone had good intentions, but they lacked follow-through? I mean, how many of you ever been in that type of situation? Some of you are thinking, yeah, that's my husband, um, or that's my wife. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're not careful in that type of situation, it can become a very frustrating thing, right? You can find yourself just getting really, really agitated with that person. But what if you could encourage that person in a way that prompts them to follow through on their good intention. Well, that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 is a continuation of chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Paul begins to encourage the believers that were in Corinth to follow through on a commitment that they had made. You see, we talked about this last week. Due to famine... And persecution that had hit the area of Judea and Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, the church where everything started, the mother church was suffering greatly, great financial strain. And so Paul saw this as a great opportunity for the Gentile believers in in Asia Minor and in Macedonia and Achaia and in those areas. He saw this as a tremendous opportunity for them, these Gentile believers, to be able to help their Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. And so Paul reached out to all these Gentile churches, asking them if they would be willing to receive an offering to help out the believers in Jerusalem. And Corinth, which was a wealthy church, it was a wealthy area, they they were the first to respond, and they responded enthusiastically. They were like, yes, we're on it, we want to help, happy to be a part of that. But as time went on, For one reason or another, they never followed through on their promise. So Paul is writing to them here to encourage them to follow through. And we noted last week three ways that he sought to encourage them. We saw this in chapter 8. One was by using the example of the churches in Macedonia who had already given. And we saw that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 8. We also saw that he gave an encouragement, and it was really interesting the way that he said it to them. He said, you know, you guys abound. You guys have been blessed. You guys are abounding in a lot of graces, you know, love and knowledge and, you know, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all these different things that he says, you know, you guys in Corinth, you guys have been abounding in these things. But he says, I want you to abound in this grace too. And he's referring to giving as a grace, which we talked about. That seems kind of weird, right? Because we know the word grace means undeserved favor, but when we really, really think about it, great giving is a way that God allows us to be able to partner with him in what he's doing in the church and in the world. And so really it is an undeserved favor. It's kind of like, I don't, I don't need your help in the same way I use this analogy. I don't need my grandson's help to, you know, when I'm working on a project at the house, but I let him help me because it blesses him. It brings joy to him. And that's what God does to us too. And so Paul says, you know, I want you guys to abound in this grace. And then the third example that we saw that he gave in verse nine was the example of Jesus and how Jesus 
escape. Well, here in chapter 9, he's going to continue in his encouragement. And I think we can really, really learn from what Paul does here in these first five verses, what Paul does here to encourage them that it can be an example to you and I to how to encourage people in our lives that maybe get stuck. They have good intentions, but they get stuck. There hasn't been any follow-through that I think what Paul does is a great example for us to help people in how to get unstuck. So the first thing I want you to notice that Paul does here with them is he gives them the benefit of the doubt. Look at verse 1. He says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, that literally means not necessary, it's kind of a fancy word for just saying, it's not necessary for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago. So here's what Paul's doing. Paul is believing that they still want to help. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. He's believing that they still want to help, and so he's giving them the benefit of the doubt that there has been a reason for their delay. Now, Paul is the same one who wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and love is kind, and that love believes all things and love hopes all things. So this is what Paul's doing here. This is what, what that love looks like, is he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I, and I ask you this question, what is your natural tendency in dealing with others? Do you naturally kind of think the worst of others, or do you think the best? You know, I think the Lord wants us to be those who really are looking to think the best, especially of our brothers and sisters in Christ, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Paul here is thinking the best. He says, I know your willingness. In fact, I boasted about it, and I, I, I believe, I'm believing that that hasn't changed. So the first thing he does is he gives them the benefit of the doubt. The second thing he does is he tells them that others have already been encouraged by their zeal. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, your zeal has stirred up the majority. Isn't it interesting how zeal can, have, can be used to have a contagious effect on others in the body of Christ? Have you experienced that before? You know, where somebody else is kind of getting fired up about something and, and, and it's like you kind of catch their fire. It's like, you know, man, I'm, I want to I be involved in that. You know, I, I've had this happen to me at times when um, there's been a disaster and I see other churches that are maybe, you know, jumping on planes to fly to Mississippi or fly to one of these places where a hurricane hit. And, and it's like, you've heard of FOMO, right? You know, fear of missing out. You know, it's kind of like that, that sets in like, man, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss out. You know, I don't want to hear the stories. And so, so, okay, I'm going to go too. And, and that does, you know, that can't be the only reason why you do that. Yeah, the Lord has to confirm it. But I think the Lord can use that sometimes. You see God working and moving in somebody else and you're kind of like, you know, hey, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss out. And so we, we see he's using here, he's seeking to encourage the believers in Corinth by using the zeal, their, how their zeal has already affected others. Great way to encourage. And then the third thing that he does here is he sent men ahead to help them get ready. Verse, notice verse 3. He says, yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, that you may be ready, lest 
if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, that we, not to mention you, should be ashamed. The idea there is we would be embarrassed of this confident boasting. Like, I would be embarrassed. You guys would be embarrassed. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not a grudging obligation. Now, I got to just say this. If, If this wasn't the Apostle Paul, and if this wasn't inspired by God, you could almost feel like this is being manipulative, you know? But this isn't. This is God, and I think what he's doing here is he's also giving us just a really, really great example that Paul, he's saying, look, because I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you would still want to help, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send an advance team to come and help you. Because Paul realized that it would be embarrassing for them and for him if they weren't ready. If he showed up and they weren't ready. You know, I've made this mistake before in my marriage. And I want you to listen. All of you, you know, young married guys or soon-to-be married guys, Aaron. um, (laughs) I want you to listen to this, to not make, learn from my mistakes, all right? Um, I wrote a book um, once on, on church planting, and it was called uh, Lessons from a Church Planner, The Things I've Learned from My Mistakes. And um, when we were showing the book to the editor, or I don't know what he is, the head guy at Calvary Distribution, he, he's like, oh, I love this. And he said, you know what, you could write another one on marriage. Um, you know, marriage, the things I've learned from my mistake. He says, you could be the mistake guy. And you know what, I absolutely could. I could be the mistake guy, because I've made all of them in every area. But my wife was like, I don't think I want you to do that. But... Uh, <laughs> So it's reserved only for you, okay? Um, But I've made this mistake, and it is not a good one. I've made the mistake of showing up for dinner and bringing somebody home for dinner unannounced. (laughs) You know, not calling my wife, not letting my wife know, just showing up, hey, look who I brought home for dinner. Listen, that is not good, guys. You don't want to do that. It's awkward. Um, you know, your, your wife's not ready. You know, maybe the house isn't ready. And, and it's awkward. And the person feels awkward because she can tell, like they can tell, you know, just what an awkward situation that it is. And, and you sort of like almost feel obligated, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta put something together because you brought somebody home. You know, I was gonna send you to McDonald's, you know, but now, you know, I gotta put, and it's that, that type of thing. So my wife does not like those kind of surprises. I don't know if some of you ladies care about that, but my wife doesn't like that. So I've learned, and there have been plenty of times where I will call my wife, and, and again, take note of this, I don't text her, I call her. You know why? Because I need to hear her tone, okay? When I say, hey, do you care if I bring so-and-so home for dinner? 
I need to hear the tone. If I just text it, you know, and she's like, no, I don't care. But really it was like, no, I don't care. You know, like it was like kind of that tone, like, okay, she cares. This is not a good idea. I'll take them for pizza. Um, you know, so, but there's been those times with even an hour notice that I let her know, hey, I'm bringing somebody home. Is that okay? And she's like, yeah, that's great. And I come home. The house is ready. There's a great meal. And this is the idea that Paul is saying. He goes, look, you know, I'm, I'm sending someone ahead. But the idea is even better than that. He said, I'm not just calling ahead. I'm sending. It'd be like me saying to my wife, I'm, I'm not just going to call. I'm going to send you a chef and a house and a, a housekeeper to help you get ready for this group. That's what Paul is doing here. So that when the team shows up, that's coming to collect the offering, he says, they're, they're not going to catch you off guard, but will be blessed by your readiness. So we see this beautiful picture that Paul lays out here of how to help someone who's maybe stuck, how to help them follow through in their good intentions. You give them the benefit of the doubt that there's a reason for the delay. You build them up by sharing with them the effect that their good intentions has already had on others and you know what it's going to have as it's carried out. And then you do what you physically can to help them get unstuck. You see, it's easy to tell someone, you know, give them a little pep talk, but it's so much more beneficial when you say, hey, how can I help? How can I get involved? How can I jump in here and help you in this situation? Now, as we continue here in verse 6, Paul introduces this principle about sowing and reaping. And this is really going to take up the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 6. But this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, Paul is using this principle here in regards to the offering that they were going to give. And he's saying, look, I just, you know, I want to encourage you in this, that he who sows sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. In other words, you can't sow a little bit and expect a whole harvest. You can't, you know, sow a little bit and expect a whole field to grow. So there's a spiritual principle and law that Paul is giving us here. Just like there are laws in conjunction with our universe, like the law of gravity. You know, when I was coming up... um, to church and parked in the back over here tonight and I was walking and I noticed that there was a, a ladder attached to the ladder that goes to the roof. And, and I thought, well, that looks like an accident waiting to happen because I can just picture some junior high kid going, oh, that looks like fun and climbing up and getting on, you know, getting on the, the ladder. And, and uh, we've been having a guy painting around the church and and so I went and talked to Pastor Steve and I said, is Patrick on the roof? And he says, I don't think so. And I said, okay. And so I had my buddy Mike over here move the ladder and I was like, I hope Patrick's not on the roof because <laughs> he's not going to be able to get down. He'll have to jump because that's the law of gravity. You know, he's going to fall. That's what happens. You jump off the roof, you're going to fall. Or, or, you know, there's the electricity. We don't see it. 
But we see how it works. These lights on in here because the law of electricity is working and functioning right now among us. Well, here's three laws that go with this idea of sowing and reaping. Number one is you reap after the same kind. In other words, if I plant an apple seed, I'm not going to get a plum tree. I'm going to get an apple tree, right? You reap after the same kind. If I sow wheat, I'm not going to get corn. You reap after the same kind. And this is the principle that applies in really every area of our walks. You know, I meet Christians who wonder why their walks with Jesus are anemic. And it's the part of the reason is because they, they're sowing sparingly into their relationship with Christ. They're spending way too much time involved in other things. And if you, you know, sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. And so their walks are anemic because they're, they're not sowing, you know, really sowing very much into their walk with Christ, but it also plays a part into what they're sowing, that they're not sowing the right thing. Paul said this in Galatians chapter six. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap for he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap life. You're going to reap good things. You're going to reap the fruit of the Spirit. But if you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption because this is the law. You reap after its kind, whatever you're sowing. You know, some people want to experience growth spiritually, but they spend their their whole lives just sowing to nonsense. And so it's not going to happen. Listen, you're not going to reap a life of fruit in your life if you're just sowing to the flesh. You reap after the same kind. In the book of Hosea, we're told this. Those who sow to the wind will reap the whirlwind. In other words, if you just take the seed of your life and and your resources and you're sowing it to the wind of the world, which which means by that is like every passing fancy, every earthly pleasure, don't be surprised if there's nothing left. That's the idea. We reap what we sow. Don't be surprised if you don't have anything to show for your efforts. But you know what? This doesn't just apply in our walks with Jesus. This also applies in our marriages as well. This is an application for married couples who wonder why their marriages are struggling. And, you know, I like to to say this, that marriage is like a garden in two ways. Number one, you get out of it what you put into it. Like if I sow, you know, tomato seeds in my garden, I'm going to reap tomato seeds, right? Well, the same thing is true in marriage. If you're sowing seeds of neglect and disrespect and distrust, well, guess what? That's what you're going to get because that's what you're sowing into. But if you are sowing seeds of love and respect, you're going to get, you're going to reap the blessing of those things as well. Now, another way that marriage is like a garden is this. If you neglect a garden, what happens? Well, things die and weeds grow. You neglect your garden, you just kind of let it go for a couple months and you go out and you got a bunch of weeds growing and all the things you planted, they have died. Well, guess what? The same thing happens in a marriage. If you neglect your spouse, things die. Love dies, trust dies, joy dies, and weeds grow. Weeds of anger and bitterness and tension and individualism. 
But if you sow seeds of trust and love and grace into your relationship and you sow that bountifully, guess what? You're going to reap that bountifully. And I'll tell you this. You can always tell. You can always tell. Usually always tell. I'll say that. You usually always tell a wife who is well-loved. There's just a confidence about how she carries herself because she knows my husband loves me. My husband's pleased with me because he's sowing that into his relationship with her. So this principle of sowing and reaping, it, it's applicable in our marriages. It's applicable in our, our walk with Jesus. It's applicable in our relationship with our kids and our grandkids. If you sow sparingly into them, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap a lot. But also, what are you sowing? It's going to reap after its own kind. What are you sowing into that relationship? So the first law of sowing and reaping is you reap after the same kind. The second law is you reap after, only after you've sown. You got to sow first, right? You can't expect a, a harvest if you don't plant any seeds. That might seem obvious that the harvest comes after the planting, but it's really, really important. Now, here's what's interesting, though. Oftentimes, for us as believers, this can be tough because a lot of times we're sowing and we're sowing and we're sowing, and it can seem like a long time before we see any fruit, be it in our marriages or our walk with the Lord or, or with our kids. And we live in this, you know, world where we want everything instant, right? We have our fast food drive-ups and, you know, we have our instant everything. We want it now. And we want instant harvest and instant fruit in our lives. But it doesn't happen that way. You know, we want our three-year-old, by the time he's four, to be Charles Spurgeon. You know, we, we want, you know, we want, we're like, we have these great expectations, my grandson, I've said this, told some of you before this, that he lives with us. And a lot of nights before he goes to bed, he'll come into our you know, bedroom and, and say, good night, Poppy, good night, Grammy. And, and I'll say, Josiah, you want us to pray with you? And most of the time, he's like, yeah. You know, he comes up and he loves it and he echoes you know, as I'm praying. Well, last night he came in and I'm, you know, good night, Poppy, good night, Grammy. And I'm like, Josiah, you want us to pray with you? He goes, no, and runs out the room. You know? it's, like, it's like... Come on, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm expecting him to be leading the prayer, you know, and, and now he's like, I don't want to pray. It's like, but we, we do that. We get in that place, right, where, come on, you know, we want it instantly. But, hey, what happens? You plant a seed. What does the farmer do? He plants it, he waters it, and then he waits. And that's how this is in our life, in our ministries, in the people that we're dealing with. And Paul said this in Galatians 6, verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in, everybody say this together, in due season. In due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now, here's a mistake that the backslidden person makes. He sows to his flesh and nothing happens. There's no ramifications. There's no negative consequences. It's just kind of business as usual. He might feel like things are still going great. And so then he makes this next mistake 
this rationale. Oh, God must not care. Yeah, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but you know, hey, everything's going great. He, 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 doesn't, he probably doesn't care about this. Listen, the, it takes time for you to reap what you're going to sow. And oftentimes the reason why there's no ramifications is because God is long-suffering and he's patient and he's gracious and he's hoping that you're going to come to your senses and repent and turn from your sin. But know this. As Paul said, God will not be mocked. Your sin, it will find you out. Yet there will always be consequences. But this is a reminder for us, for us who are, you know, in the Lord, that, hey, we're sowing, but we're not going to receive a harvest until we sow. Planting comes first. So the third thing we, we see that is a law is that you reap more than you sow. You plant one apple seed, but what do you get? A tree full of apples. In the spiritual realm, you sow to the Spirit. And listen, God is never, ever going to be your debtor. Never. He's going to bless you. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of, your, of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. So you're always going to reap more than you sow. And this is the principle that Paul's giving here is that you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly, but if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. And this really reminds me of something that God said through the prophet Malachi in the book of Malachi to the people of Israel. I'll read it to you in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Malachi writes, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Listen, we don't give. Don't misunderstand this. We're not giving to get. That's the false teaching that the prosperity teachers throw on people. Hey, you give to get. You give your $10 and God's going to bless it a hundredfold. And, you know, they make these promises that are not really what the Bible is saying. We don't give to get. Now, we give to the Lord in response to what he has done in our lives. We give to the Lord because we understand that this is a part of our privilege. It's one of the ways that the Lord allows us to partner with him. But this is interesting to me that in Malachi 3.10, it's such a unique passage because it's the only time in the entire Bible that God says, put me to the test on this. Put me to the test on this. And basically what he's saying is that, hey, you can never, ever outgive me. Never. Now, notice how Paul continues to apply this to his encouragement to the Corinthians about following through on their good intention. Verse 7, he says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. So when it comes to a special offering like this that, that Paul was collecting, this wasn't a tithe, this was a special offering that, that he is, is collecting, he's saying, look, what you give, it's really up to you. It's whatever God purposes in your heart. It's whatever he shows you in your own heart. 
So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this is what he's saying. He's saying make sure that you're not giving out of obligation or compulsion, that you're not giving grudgingly, that it's, you know, it's never like, oh no, it's the offering time, you know, bummer, you know, never, never that type of thing. If that's your heart, this is what God would say. I don't want you to give. I don't need your money. This is my blessing that I'm allowing you to partner with me. And what he's telling us here is that the heart, this is really the the indicators, it's going to be seen by our hearts. And this is what God's interested in. So he says, let him purpose in his heart. Don't give begrudgingly. And we talked about this last week. We saw this in in chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I speak not by commandments. Paul's saying, look, this isn't a commandment. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love and your diligence to others. Or in chapter 8, verse 24, remember he said this, therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of the boasting of your life. He's saying, look, this is an indicator of your affections. This is an indicator that you realize that, that I've done something in your heart. But God says, look, I don't want you to do this begrudgingly or out of necessity. But Paul says this, God loves a cheerful giver. Another translation puts it, God loves a hilarious giver. So it's like the picture of somebody just laughing their head off. <laughs> this is awesome. You know, it's offering time. You know, and they're just excited about it. They're cheerful about it. They're joyful about it. They're like, Lord, thank you so much that I get a partner with you in what you are doing in, in our church and, and in the world. God, this is such a blessing that it's great gratitude. God, thank you so much that you've saved me and this is the least I can do. It's that type of heart that Paul's talking about here because this is the point. This is what God wants for all of us. God wants us to learn to live generously. And Paul outlines what happens to us and in us and through us when we learn to do that. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, I want to read this again out of the New Living Translation. I love the way it puts it. It'll be on the screen. The New Living Translation puts it this way. And God will generously provide all you need, And then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor and their good deeds will be remembered forever. Here's what Paul's saying. You learn to live generously and this is what's going to happen. You're going to be enriched personally. That's the first thing that's going to happen. Your life is going to be blessed And he says, you will have a lasting legacy. Notice that last phrase. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. It's like that's going to be your legacy. Notice verse 10, he says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. So he's saying God's the one who supplies what we have. May he supply and, and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, Paul here is still 
looking at giving as a seed being sown. Don't miss the metaphor here. And again, I find this to be interesting. You get a seed. Anybody here, I mean, how many of you have ever bought a package of seeds of some kind? And I'm not talking um, sunflower seeds that you eat. I'm talking about like a package of seeds, right? Of something, like you had that intention, right? You didn't buy those seeds to hoard them, right? Like it'd be no good if, if you took the seeds and like, okay, I got my little package of seeds. I'm gonna put them in a safe and I'm gonna lock them up. That's not the purpose. No, you buy the seeds to plant them in the ground. And this is what Paul is saying, that your gifts and your talents and your time and your resources are like seeds that are not meant to be hoarded, but they're meant to be used. To get out of the little pouch and to get spread. The seed is meant to go into the ground and so too what we have has been made, is, is meant by the Lord to be used as a tool. That's how God wants to use it. Again, I want to read verse 10 to you in the New Living Translation. It's so good. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. And in the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. I love that. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. So this is what God is wanting to do in you and I, to produce in us a harvest of generosity, that generosity would just flow from our lives, that generosity would just be a part of your DNA as a follower of Jesus. And in that, we will discover what Jesus said to be really, really true, because Jesus said this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's saying, look, you're going to find out giving is a lot of fun. When you're using your time and your talents and your gifts and your resources, and you're using them to just being generous to, to bless others, you're going to find this is so fun. Because here's the reality. Giving is not God's way of raising funds. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. But you know what giving is? It's God's way of raising kids. God's a giver. And he wants his kids to be givers too. And when we learn to live generously like the Lord, he promises to supply our need. He promises to reward us generously. And he tells us that that will be our lasting legacy. In fact, Jesus taught this, that even the smallest gift, if given with the right heart, will not go unrewarded. Listen to this, Matthew 10, verse 42. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in, my na- in the name of of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Isn't that awesome? So a bunch of you tonight are going, I'm gonna go get water and take it to children's ministry, you know, before they leave their rooms, you know. I want that reward from the Lord. Really, God wants us to abound in every good gift. Now I want you to notice here the further results that Paul gives. And I'm gonna just do this. I wanna read the rest of this passage these remaining verses just in the new living translation because i just love the way it puts it it'll be on the screen he says this verse 11 and when we take your gifts that would be their offering to those who need them they will thank god 
And so two things will result from this ministry of giving. Here's the first one. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. Here's the second one. And they will joyfully express thanks to God as a result of your ministry, they will glorify God. So here's what he's saying. This is what's going to happen. The needs of these people who are hurting in need, they're going to be met and they are going to glorify God because of what you have done. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ, that you're obedient to the gospel. And then here's the last thing that Paul says. This is so good. He tells them this in verse 14, that your hearts are going to be forever joined together with these people. That through this act of giving and reaching out in this way, God's going to connect you. Notice how he puts it. Again, it'll be on the screen. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that God has given to you. Thank God for this gift that is too wonderful for words. So here's what Paul's saying as we wrap this up tonight. Here's what happens when we live generously from the right heart. You get blessed and enriched you leave, your life leaves a lasting legacy. Others are helped. God is glorified. And your hearts are forever joined together with these people in a deep affection, the people that you have helped. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I hear that. I'm like, I want that. That's what I want for my life. I want to be that kind of person who is living generously so that my life would be blessed and enriched, so that my life would leave a lasting legacy, so that others would be helped and God would be glorified, and that, that our hearts would be connected in this special way. That's what happens when God's people use their time and their resources and their gifts and their talents to live generously for the Lord. And church, let's be those kind of people. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouragement from our brother, the Apostle Paul, tonight. Thank you, Lord, for his example of being one to, to just seek to get these people, the Corinthians, unstuck. And Lord, I pray that we would be those tonight who would really truly desire to live generously. That we would take our time and our resources and our talents and our hearts and God, that we would seek to sow, not sparingly, but bountifully so that our lives would be enriched, that, that you would bring out of us a harvest of generosity that others would be built up, that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that when we see needs, we wouldn't ignore them. But Lord, that you would show us how to help, how to serve. And Lord, I pray that we would be a body of believers who are not forsaking one another, 
forsaking our fellowship and care of one another, but that we would be a body of believers stirring up one another to love and good works as we see the day of your coming approaching. And Lord, thank you so much for the wonderful and beautiful gift that you have given to us in sending your son, Jesus. And Lord, may our hearts just respond to that every day of our lives in the way we carry ourselves, in the way that we give to others. We love you, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here tonight. I thank you for those watching online. And Lord, I just pray, God, blessing upon them this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.